Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. I had a, an email a few moments ago from Dolores asking which home renovation woe I'll be sharing with you today. I don't actually think she was mocking me. I think she was actually being quite supportive. Yesterday I was talking, it wasn't really a home renovation woe. It was more just a, a general home ownership woe I was talking about yesterday with just having been suckered into spending money on a rented water. I'm doing it again. I'm talking about the water heater. No, I've got the water heater. It's installed. It's working. The water is piping hot like I hope the ratings of this show are and they won't be if I talk only about water heaters so we'll move on from that uh, but I do thank you for all of you who have called uh, written in and shared your own uh, similar stories. It was actually a, a somewhat uh, pertinent topic for a lot of people. So uh, anyway, uh, one thing I want to talk about on this show, and I'll get to it very shortly, is that uh, True North, it seems like, has finally been blocked by Facebook. We have been, according to most people, now not all, there are some folks who, for whatever reason, have still been able to navigate to our page, but for the most part, our content is no longer available to Canadians. I can't see it on my own account. We can post it, but uh, for the majority of Canadians, certainly those not using a VPN, you can no longer see True North on Facebook. And this is uh, easy to blame Facebook for, but it's actually the fault of the Liberal government and its internet regulation bill C-18. So we'll get to that a little bit later on in the show and talk about the implications of that. But I want to begin by discussing immigration. Now, this is actually, if you go back into the annals of True North history, immigration is really the reason there is a True North. My friend and colleague Candace Malcolm saw that there was just this massive issue that was tremendously relevant and had all sorts of policy failures stemming from it in the federal government's eyes. And no one was talking about it in the media. So she actually started this organization, which was originally intended to be a think tank on immigration issues. And from there, the story of, of how True North blossomed and, and bloomed uh, is a long and very positive one. But uh, ultimately speaking, immigration is an issue that matters a lot, and it's become the third rail the third rail of Canadian politics, where even conservatives oftentimes get sucked into the very same outlook and very same approach as the Liberals, or a marginally better one. Now, uh, Stephen Harper and the Conservatives were very pro-immigration. There's a reason that they had such a, a tremendous showing in the 2011 election in the Greater Toronto Area. It was because they had done a lot to build inroads within ethnic communities, and a lot of that was spearheaded by Jason Kenney, who was Harper's longtime immigration minister. But even Harper's pro-immigration policy and politics was always constrained by economic and cultural realities. And that was, I think, a very key difference between the conservative approach to immigration, which was pro-immigration, and the liberal approach, which is very much pro-immigration, but in a much more virtue-signaling way. Now, as it stands, Justin Trudeau has made a very bold and audacious commitment that every year uh, he is going to ratchet up immigration into Canada even more to the point where by 2025, we have 500,000 immigrants coming in every year as PRs, basically economic immigrants and also some family reunification. Now, that is a low ball if you if you take into consideration other sources of immigration like for example 
uh, asylum seekers who we know are continuing to increase in number in Canada, and also some temporary foreign workers, students who are not coming here through the PR stream, but are nonetheless entrants into Canada. So uh, there have been some estimates that have said annual entry is closer to a million, although not all of those are permanent. Now, all of that aside, 500,000 a year is a number that sounds nice to the Liberals. It's a number of which they can be proud, of which all of us as Canadians are supposed to be proud. And I want to just talk about the way Statistics Canada, which is supposed to be a neutral arbiter of facts and numbers and stats, the way Statistics Canada views this. Now, they published this piece uh, regarding the previous census information in which they talked about the immigrants making up largest share of the population in over 150 years and continue to shape who we are as Canadians. Now, that's a very weird analysis, but the premise of this is that we have the largest ever share of the Canadian population that is immigrants now than ever before. 22.3% was the previous 1921 record. Now it is 23%, and that number is expected to increase by 2041 to 34% of the population. So in about uh, 17, 18 years, more than one-third of the Canadian population will be immigrants. Now, when you look at population growth, Canadians are not having children. The Canadian fertility rate is abysmal. It is not at replacement rate. So 75% of Canada's population growth is coming from immigrants, not from people having children. Now, a lot of people would look at this number and say, so what? What does it matter? And I take a view uh, that is far away from this whole like great replacement fear that some evil sinister forces are trying to reshape the image and make, you know, Canadians, uh, the old stock Canadians, as they are derisively called by Justin Trudeau uh, yesterday's news. No, I, I think what's happening here is you have two things. You have people that want to come to Canada because they see in Canada something valuable that they want for themselves and their families. And then you have people that see in Canada a blank slate on which they can project whatever they want to bring from their country, from their culture, from their civilization. And it's that latter category that can cause issues. It's that latter category that has caused so many problems in places like Germany and Sweden and the United Kingdom and Ireland. It's that category of people that do not wish to, uh, the word that you're not supposed to say, but I will say, people that do not wish to assimilate into a particular society, but wish to bring the best of both worlds in their view, or maybe it's the worst of both worlds, into a home that offers a slightly better economic opportunity than wherever it is from which they've come. And this is why immigration is an issue that we need to talk about, and it's why we should be able to have it in a dispassionate way that focuses on the stats. And to go back to that Statistics Canada piece here, uh, that line that they include as a bit of a boast is actually quite important here, that immigrants continue to shape who we are as Canadians. So by design, by the government's design, immigration is not meant to be about selling the Canadian experience to people that do not have that experience and do not have that hope and that uh, path forward in their own countries. It is by design about remaking Canada and reshaping Canada based on the fabric of the immigrants that we bring into this country. Now, some people may bring tremendous work ethic. They may bring a tremendous devotion and dedication to their family. 
but we are fooling ourselves if we think there are not other people that are bringing things that are far less desirable here, such as a contempt for equal rights, a contempt for women's rights, a contempt for gay rights. And as a country, we should be able to talk about that. We should be able to talk about the social fabric of this nation when you have such a large and ambitious view of what immigration is supposed to be, which to the liberals is 500,000 a year as a minimum. But again, the government brags about the number itself. And I, I want to show another government press release here. Not that I am in the business of just parroting whatever the government wants to tell you, but I think it's actually worth pointing out. Uh, this is a press release from the Government of Canada through Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada that was issued January 3rd, 2023. Canada welcomes historic number of newcomers in 2022. The first paragraph here, Canada has experienced one of the fastest recoveries from the pandemic, thanks in large part to our approach to immigration. Newcomers enrich our communities and contribute to our economy by working, creating jobs, and supporting local businesses. Recognizing their value, the Government of Canada planned to welcome 431,000 new permanent residents in 2022. Now, if you look at the numbers a bit further, you see that Canada is, as a general rule, proud to be the number one acceptor of immigrants as a percentage of population in the G7. This has been Canada's value added to the world, that we take more immigrants than anybody else in the world. This is what Justin Trudeau thinks Canada does better. This is what he believes is our comparative advantage. Is it working that way? I don't actually think so. And one example, which is not about culture, it's not about religion, it's not about equal rights, it's not about any of that. It is purely economic because the government believes that the sales pitch for immigration is that it enriches and enhances our economy. And there is good reason for that in some cases because we do have a labor shortage. We do have immigrants that are happy to come here and bring a work ethic that makes it so they are all too willing to do a job that perhaps a Canadian does not want to do. But we also have to house the people that come here. When immigrants come to Canada, overwhelmingly, they're flocking to cities that are already very densely populated. They don't want to go to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And I, there is an exception here when we're talking about temporary foreign workers, but they're not part of the $500,000 figure that the government is striving towards. So when people are coming, they're going to the cities that already have very high ethnic communities. They're going to Vancouver. They're going to Toronto, in some cases to Montreal. And the reason those cities are dealing with such a housing crunch is because they have more people available than they have houses available. And this is just simple supply and demand. You don't even need to have passed an economics class to understand that. We already have a housing crisis in Canada. Adding 1.5 million new permanent residents in three years strikes me as a bit of a problem if you already have millions of Canadians who would love to buy a home but cannot afford to. Now, a poll done shows that Canadians are more aware of this problem than the federal government is. Canadians actually get this, believe it or not. A piece that was done by Bloomberg and polling that was done by Abacus Data show that 68% of Canadians think that Canada's immigration targets are making things more unaffordable or less affordable when it comes to housing. That is two-thirds of Canadians. This is not a racial concern. 
as is always blamed when people raise an issue with Canada's immigration numbers. No, this is an economic concern. People who maybe are unable to afford a house themselves or have children that can't actually buy a home are seeing, okay, you know what, maybe 1.5 million. I actually don't care if we bring in this woman from Italy or that guy from Sudan or uh, that nice happy couple from Afghanistan. I'm fine with them, but I also can't afford a house as it is, so maybe we just shouldn't bring in anyone, and it has nothing to do with country or skin color or religion. And this is an entirely non-racist and legitimate objection to immigration that the federal government is not interested in, and that a lot of the researchers, the academics, uh, the generally speaking intelligentsia types or self-professed intelligentsia types refuse to acknowledge. For example, there was a, a study that was done by some obnoxious researcher in Canada. I can't even remember the name of the study, but it doesn't matter. It was uh, aiming at the so-called far right of Canada. And they uh, named True North in this, along with other outlets. And they used as an example of being so-called far right uh, the concerns about uncontrolled migration as though it is far right and perhaps even racist to talk about the issues of uncontrolled migration when any country, even the most liberal and progressive, has some form of control on migration. I mean, even the 500,000 figure that the liberals want involves putting a cap in place at that 500,000. But we know that in Canada, that number is just a fancy virtue signaling number, like, for example, net zero by 2035 is. And the government will get so focused on the quota, they stop looking at the quality and the rigorous vetting that is necessary for a functional and secure immigration system. And I'm suspicious that they're going to get to, oh, I don't know, the third quarter and find, oh, wow, we haven't actually gotten three quarters of the way to 500,000 yet. So let's just open the floodgates because we need to hit that number. We need to put out the press release that talks about, oh, how welcoming we are as a country. But let's just drill down for a moment here on the math on this, on the economics, because the government says that the only way we can fill the labor shortage is through immigration. Okay, there's some basis for immigrants being necessary to filling up the workforce when there are vacancies. But the government is claiming that there's not actually going to be a housing issue because when we have more immigrants, we'll be building more houses. That's the argument they're putting forward. And it's one that didn't quite add up to my colleague, Cosman Georgia, host of The Daily Brief and a fantastic investigative journalist at True North who joins me now. Uh, Cosman, uh, thanks for coming on the show here. Uh, what do you make of this here? What, where is the government getting this idea from that uh, houses will just be built, you know, a dime a dozen once we open the floodgates on immigration? Yeah, I think it's preposterous. And in my piece, I call it a myth. It doesn't really make sense that immigrants are going to come to Canada and suddenly start building houses. When you look at the statistics last month, Statistics Canada released the uh, labor survey, and it found that 45,000 construction jobs were lost. The month before that, it was about 16,000. So it really doesn't add up. Who are, where are these immigrants that are building houses? Yeah, it's a valid question. And I know, and you, you and I spoke about this a little on the, the Daily Brief yesterday, a lot of them go into the service sector. And, and we know there are vacancies in that sector. I mean, we've all had issues where you try to 
get your coffee poured and it takes, you know, like 25 minutes or something because no one's working at whatever the local cafe is. And yeah, that's a thing that happens. But these are jobs that are very low paying jobs. They're not a job that you're ever going to be able to build a house with uh, a salary on typically in cities like Toronto or Vancouver, especially, whereas construction jobs pay considerably well, and, and you can actually do very well with this. So uh, why is this not happening? Has there been any research done into this? Has there been any effort to uh, get people into that track? Because that's a, an area where we desperately need labor in Canada. Yeah, no, I don't think there's been much research. When I looked at the statistics from 2019, uh, it shows that the most popular jobs for immigrants are service jobs, healthcare jobs, uh, bureaucratic jobs. They're not necessarily coming here building the infrastructure that we need to sustain such high levels of immigration. They're all going to high density areas. You mentioned this earlier. And with that comes a host of problems like increases in rent, uh, increases in the price of housing, increases in the price of goods. Also high density areas have generally have higher rates of crime. We see this happening in, in Toronto and uh, Vancouver and other major cities. So what, what solutions uh, it, are the liberal government proposing? None really, what Mark Miller said last week was that he wants to increase the number of immigrants. He's, he's proposing to actually make it even higher than, than the uh, 1 million target every two years we have right now. Yet we know that there's not enough houses being built. So I, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think they even have a solution to the housing crisis. And a part of me thinks that there's a cynical uh, sort of desire to keep the housing prices high. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering, just I want to drill down on that point with you in a second, but I would also add here that this is not a, an issue of saying, oh, immigrants are making things difficult for native-born Canadians, because immigrants are, are making it difficult for other immigrants. And I, and I don't mean that in a way that is blaming them individually, but it also means that people that are coming to Canada in two years are dealing with what I'd say is a bill of goods that's been sold to them that's not really here, that you can have this economic fortune in Canada when they come here and find that the immigrants that came in a year and two years before them are still looking for homes as well and there's nothing left for them no you're absolutely right and i immigrated here with my family in 2003 and back then in kitchener where we lived you could rent a three-bedroom apartment for about a thousand dollars a month and that let my parents get the necessary accreditation and the the, the training they needed to to enter the professional workforce while they were doing, you know, cleaning jobs and watching the kids. So I don't think that that is an opportunity that is present to many uh, new immigrants anymore. They have to get full-time jobs, uh, both parents usually, and then they're left uh, stuck in a position that they didn't see themselves being in in the first place. So I think these uh, high levels of um, immigration targets were actually cheapening the immigration experience, we're making it worse for the new immigrants. And as a country, we should pride ourselves on, on providing a flourishing and positive experience when we come to Canada. So making it worse is simply not the solution. Cosman, Georgia, host of The Daily Brief and an investigative journalist here at True North. Thanks so much, Cosman. Thank you. And you can check out his piece at True North on this very subject. Canada lost 45,000 construction jobs. Where are 
the immigrant home builders. And again, I mean, you can make that same criticism about people born in Canada. Why are none of them going into construction? And you can also make the same criticism of Canadians about why are they, why are we not having children? These are our legitimate questions that we should not shy away from as a country and as a society. And I will point out here that the Conservatives have often not been particularly strong on this. Now, I last week, uh, maybe it was two weeks ago, I think it was uh, two weeks ago, yeah, I asked Pierre Polyev about this at a press conference. Now, this was before this polling came out, which showed how two-thirds of Canadians think that housing is being driven even more out of reach because of immigration. It was before that. But I asked him about the 500,000 target, and this was that exchange. Good afternoon, Mr. Polyev. My question is on immigration. As you know, Canada is on track to have uh, about 500,000 uh, new immigrants to the country by 2025. And I'm wondering if you think this is sustainable and if uh, a conservative government led by you would continue that trend and, and would be satisfied with that 500,000 a year number. Justin Trudeau has broken our immigration system. We see this on the streets of Toronto where refugees are living on the pavement. It wasn't like this eight years ago. When refugees came to Canada, we had them sponsored by charities, churches, mosques, synagogues, other nonprofits to give them homes, help them write resumes, and get them fast work permits so that they could get jobs and paychecks. We see it in the new movement online of immigrants who are saying they're going back because they can't afford to live here in Canada. After eight years of Trudeau, many immigrants feel like they're better off where they came from because the costs and the crime that Trudeau's policies have unleashed make this country unlivable for newcomers and for those who've been here a long time. I want to get back to common sense immigration. The numbers should be driven by the number of employers who have job vacancies that they cannot fill with Canadians, by the number of charities that want to sponsor refugees, and by the families that can reunite and support their loved ones here, not by, uh, not by egotistical uh, targets that are designed to give Justin Trudeau a vanity project. We need to get back to competent immigration. By the way, we need to expand housing construction. It's all well and good to think that you can increase the population by a million people in a year, but where are we going to house everybody? We now have, we, last year, we built fewer homes than we built in 1972. Think about that. In 1972, our population was 22 million, and we built 250,000 homes. Last year, our population was 40 million, and we built 219,000 homes. So we have nearly double the population, and we're building fewer homes. Is it any wonder? why we have a homelessness crisis, why 9 in 10 young people believe they'll never be able to afford a home, why we have 70-year-old year nurses who are living in vans after eight years of Justin Trudeau's total incompetence on everything from immigration to housing to health care, our country is falling to pieces. I will put it back together with common sense immigration, common sense health care, common sense housing policies that get things built. Thank you. I, I forget where he was. I think he might have been in Timmins when I asked that question. Not that that matters. It was just he was doing a press conference and I zoomed in. And the 
answer was a lengthy one, but I wanted you to see it and hear it in full because there was a, a fair bit of Rorschaching going on on Twitter after that exchange. I wasn't really an exchange because I didn't get a follow-up. And by Rorschaching, I mean, if you're not familiar with it, this idea where you look at an ink blot and you describe what you see, but there's nothing there. So whatever you see has been just plucked from your brain. And that uh, people who love the conservatives saw that interview and said, wow, that's a sensible, measured, common sense approach to immigration. And people who don't like Polyev, whether they're PPC supporters or uh, just uh, leftists, were saying, oh, he didn't answer the question. He dodged. He weaseled out I actually didn't hear an answer to the direct part of the question the first time I listened, because I had asked 500,000 yes or no was essentially my question. But when I re-listened later, and he says that part there about how the number should be driven by, he he still was sidestepping the very specific question of, is 500,000 sustainable? But he was giving a hint I think, a hint that uh, the Conservatives would have a smaller number. But I would also say, if that's your belief, come right out and say it. Explain why it's unsustainable. Explain why it's a problem. But the Conservatives are always, no matter how different a leader might be from his or her predecessors, the Conservatives are always constrained by the media or the way they think the media is going to respond. And if anyone comes out, and gives a thoughtful, reasoned, nuanced answer of, well, uh, Canadians are not actually convinced that these high immigration numbers are working. And if Canadians are dissatisfied, then it will cause them to turn on immigration in general, which is not healthy for a country. And we know that housing is out of reach. And if we bring in 1.5 million people over three years, that's going to further strain housing. So I would say perhaps maybe we should pare back from 500,000. If you say that, The headline is going to be conservatives hate immigrants. Exaggerating? Yeah, only a little bit. That's going to be the takeaway. That's going to be how any concern raised about Canada's immigration system, even if it is purely done in fact-based, numbers-based ways, is going to be painted. You may recall a few months ago, I shared a story and I wrote an op-ed in my substack. Well, I guess I didn't write an op-ed. I just wrote a substack. And I was discussing this really odd and difficult encounter I had with a a rather left-wing personality in the Canadian media orbit. And I was really pessimistic about the idea of breaking through our our differences. And one of the things that came up when I was speaking with this person is that I, I gave two very reasonable conservative positions that are pretty widespread within the right in Canada. I said, one, that vaccines should not be mandatory. Two, that Canada should not increase immigration every year automatically. And I asked this person, what do you think about those two statements? And this person told me that both were wrong. Because on the immigration side, this individual said that it would be racist because there is no non-racist reason to oppose immigration. And you probably think that I'm making this up because it's so absurd, but I'm probably being even more generous than this person deserved based on that interaction. But this is legitimately how people in the media, certainly those who are of a left-wing orientation, believe conservatives to be on immigration, that if they oppose unqualified increases of immigration, like uh, the kind that you don't see anywhere else in the developed world, in any other G7 country, even Germany, even Germany, which kind of learned its lesson after 2015. So when Canada is going beyond anywhere else, 
these people are still saying, well, yeah, but if you say no, you're a racist, and that's why. And, you know, the year of that 2015 increase, this was, I believe, 1 million into a population of, at the time, 80 million. That was a lower percentage of the population than what Canada has proposed and has put into effect. So anything that happened in Germany could very easily happen in Canada. That's the point that I was trying to make then. And it's especially acute now because the government has decided to double and triple down on that. And we should be able to have this conversation. And it's a shame that in this media climate, we cannot. And uh, speaking of the media, I believe it is important to point out here what has happened to True North. Now, uh, True North, as I discussed earlier, is an outlet that has a six-year almost history in this country. And it's grown tremendously. We used to be, I don't want to say entirely, but virtually uh, entirely on Facebook in terms of where our audience was. Now, that is no longer the case, and thank goodness, because as of this morning, this was the message that awaited me when I logged on to the True North Facebook page. No posts available. And I said, okay, well, have I been fired? Have I been blocked? Have we just decided to go nuclear and hit the kill switch and delete all our content? No, we were posting, and we continue to post, and this show right now is posting on Facebook. And I think, like, how many people are watching on Facebook right now? I think, like, 30 people or so because those are the ones that I guess are using VPNs or, or something oh we got 60 we got 60 on Facebook so if you're one of the 60 people watching this on Facebook right now uh, consider yourselves lucky you've evaded the news ban at, ban at least for the time being but uh, this happened and we knew it was coming so I couldn't act all shocked but it was still this very upsetting moment because I, I realized and was reminded of just how surreal it is that we live in a country in which the federal government has decided to extort from tech companies, to extort tech companies to pay off the legacy media. And I say the legacy media because they were the ones demanding the money. They were the ones who jumped up and said, stop stealing our content. Friends of CBC, which is this really bizarre organization that stands to support CBC for reasons unclear. They ran a poster campaign not long ago. You can see one of their posters here that Mark Zuckerberg is wanted, that he is wanted for the theft of news content. So this is the type of unhinged rhetoric you get from these people that uh, Facebook is stealing, Mark Zuckerberg's a pirate, and that all of their content that they voluntarily and willingly put on social media has been stolen from them, in fact. And of course, the social media companies turned around and said when the government extorted them, okay, we'll just make it so that this no longer applies to us. We'll stop disseminating news. You think we're stealing? Great. We're going to stop stealing. Problem solved. And Facebook has made good on its threat. And while I have so many issues which I've shared relentlessly and continuously with big tech companies. On this, I am on their side because they are forced to make a decision by government fiat, by government policy. They did not want to ban this content. They just didn't want to pay for it. And why should they? Because it's not their content and they never asked for it. They didn't want it. So the legacy media outlets, places like CBC and Post Media and the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail and all of these groups under the auspices of the National News Media Council, they say we want money. True North never asked for any money from Facebook or the government. We've never demanded any of this. And if I could, and I talked about this with my colleague William Macbeth last week, if I had my choice and I could just flip a switch on Facebook and say, I hereby cede any claim for C18 revenue in exchange for being able to post and share our content with Canadians, if it were my choice, I would check that box in a heartbeat because this was not our fight. 
But True North is a casualty of this fight which the legacy media has waged against big tech and which the government has decided to take up on the side of the legacy media. And this is the government, the liberal government, extorting big tech to prop up an industry which is in decline, which has not reinvented itself the way that independent media outlets have to have a viable business model in this climate. There's a reason that True North and Rebel and Canada Land and other independent outlets, not just on the right, I mentioned Canada Land for a reason. The reason that we are growing well, places like Bell are shuttering radio stations is because we have come up with a business model that lets us deliver our content in a stripped down way without a lot of the bells and whistles, but a way that lets us communicate directly with Canadians. Now, social media has played a critical and pivotal role in that. Will we survive C18? Yes, because we have to. We have no other choice. But is it going to be easy? No. And the reason I had William on last week is because it was important for me to talk to you, all of you, about ways you can avoid this. Up until this morning and last night, I guess, most people can access True North with relative ease. There were some isolated examples of people getting blocked and whatnot, but we were able to keep posting. Now, that does not appear to be the case anymore. Facebook does not appear to be backing down. They have signaled a permanent withdrawal from the market. Now, they haven't taken us offline. No one can do that. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Justin Trudeau probably wants to. But we are still online. We still have our website. We still have our YouTube page. We still have our X account, which is not a weird low-budget porn site, but it is Twitter now. And we have ultimately, ultimately a number of ways that we are trying to communicate with Canadians. But there is no better way than if you come to us directly. Cut out the middleman. Don't allow uh, our content and the delivery of it to be beholden to any company, be it Facebook or otherwise. Go to our website, tnc.news. Uh, go to subscribe. There is a, a button on there that you'll see to subscribe to our mailing list so we can communicate with you directly. And listen, when I say this, I know we all get so many emails. I get it and I, it bothers me too. But right now, it is the number one vehicle, the number one vehicle that we can use and that you can use so that we are not going to let them win because they are trying to shut us down, whether it's intentional or whether we're just casualties of war, I'll leave for you to decide. But they are trying to shut independent media down, and that is what C18 is doing, and we cannot let them win. My commitment to you is that we will not let them win, but it means that we need to engage directly. And that is what we are going to commit to do. And I hope you can commit to doing that as well. Uh, and I bring this up and ask about the legacy media because the question is not entirely about business model. Sometimes it's just about content and the type of content they offer. I mean, without $1.3 billion of taxpayer money a year, for example, you might never learn about the troubles of being non-binary in 2023. Yeah, let's take a look at this piece on CBC today. This was a first person piece that was uh, written by a an individual. I, I can't even say a person, an individual named Julia. Now, Julia has a woman's name and Julia looks like a woman and dresses like a woman and is completely and utterly feminine. But oh, no, 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 it is offensive if we view Julia as a woman. As the headline of the piece says there, I shouldn't have to look non-binary 
For my identity to be respected, I like my feminine name and wearing the occasional dress, but that doesn't define me. Uh, Julia goes by they, them pronouns, and if you don't realize that when you encounter uh, they, them in the halls of McGill University, you are just a, a dirty, hating bigot. So again, without CBC and the legacy media, how would we ever learn about the plight of the non-binary at McGill <laughs> University? This is exactly what we're dealing with there. And this story as well, I, I've said oft, oftentimes that the laziest form of journalism is the reaction stories, where a journalist will just like scroll through Twitter and find three people who've tweeted something and claim that there's some national broad trend. But sometimes you can get this really multi-layered exercise where we're going just in all these different directions and really going to like those little Russian dolls that I forget the names of uh, that uh, have all the different like ones inside each other uh, to get the reaction story to the reaction story to the reaction story. And that's what we have from Global News. Global News has run this piece. So just for context here, you remember Justin Trudeau went to the Barbie movie with his son, Xavier, and they were sporting their uh, pink shirts. Although I think we determined yesterday, Justin Trudeau's was more coral than pink. But nevertheless, they were sporting their pinkish attire and uh, enjoying the Barbie movie as, as a father and son are wont to do. And there were reactions to this, including from Pierce Morgan. So then the Toronto Star and other Canadian outlets ran the reaction to Pierce Morgan reacting to Justin Trudeau. And then we have this story from Global News, which I find to be absolutely hilarious here, that it is a reaction to Pierce Morgan reacting to Justin Trudeau. And the reaction comes from the mayor of Kitchener, Ontario. Now, uh, no disrespect to Kitchener. I've driven through it many times. I know my colleague Cosman uh, is from Kitchener originally, but I don't exactly care what the mayor of Kitchener thinks about politics on an average daily basis, unless we're talking about Kitchener politics. But uh, Barry uh, Vrabinovich, uh, tweets at Piers Morgan, uh, I was raised, if I didn't say have something nice to say, it's better not to say anything at all. Perhaps you can go and repeat that lesson. Born, uh, yada, 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 he goes on. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is because Global News writes this, that the mayor of Kitchener fires back at Piers Morgan for pot shot on Justin Trudeau social media posts. So now we have to get someone to react to the mayor. Of, well, actually, no, I'm doing that. I'm reacting to the mayor of Kitchener. So now someone else can write about Andrew Lawton reacting to the mayor of Kitchener, reacting to Piers Morgan, reacting to Justin Trudeau, reacting to Margot Robbie. It'll be so great. We'll just get like 19 reactions in one and we'll go like around the world. It's like the old uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, the uh, six reactions to Justin Trudeau. But this is what the legacy media is doing. My my goodness, just on the Barbie note here, I mentioned on yesterday's show that I didn't really care what movies Justin Trudeau sees as prime minister. I thought he was trying to troll people, and I am now convinced that I was right because this is the tweet that Justin Trudeau put up yesterday with him and his daughter taking in a movie. That is his daughter, Ella. And the movie that they are seeing is not Barbie, but it is Oppenheimer. Now, uh, Jen Gerson, as I shared with you yesterday, had that rather astute tweet that all she wants is a world leader who's going to see Oppenheimer. Uh, she got her wish there. Uh, some people might wonder why this uh, grand cinephile has uh, all this time for seeing movies when he's supposed to be running the country. 
it is kind of interesting here because he is doing the opposite of what you'd expect because the expectation people would have is that, oh, his daughter would rather see the Barbie movie and the son would rather see the Oppenheimer movie. And it's almost as though they're trying to just make this very brand-oriented decision as part of their quest for privacy to, like, put the child with the movie that is going to make the stereotype shattering point that the liberals want to make. I don't know what movie he's going to see with his other son. Like maybe that kid gets screwed out of seeing a movie at all because they've covered off uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer already. Is there anything else in theaters that's worth seeing? Actually, I don't think there has been for like 20 years. So Mission Impossible, Sean writes. No, he, he can't bring his son to see Mission Impossible, Sean, because that would just be too on the nose that a young boy might like Mission Impossible. He has to bring his son to see uh, something else entirely. So whatever the next sort of traditionally girlyish movie might be, uh, because that's how we have to do it. I mean, I, poor, I, I hope the daughter liked Oppenheimer, and I hope she wasn't just dragged there to make the point that girls can like Oppenheimer and guys can like Barbie. But you know what? In the inauthenticity of politics, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. That does it for us today, with the one exception here. I want to show you this little video here, because you may recall that uh, being in a movie theater for much of the last three years, was illegal because the theaters were shut down under COVID protocols. Now, when the world reopened, it meant that life could go back to normal. Well, some people just aren't all that comfortable with normal. But I'm pleased to tell you, if you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, there is a way that you can see Barbie in a completely safe, sterile environment, COVID-free. Take a look. I don't remember the last time I went to see a movie because I don't love going to the movie theater. But I'll tell you what, it pisses me off that I can't go see Barbie. I want to go see it, even if it is white feminism. I want to be able to go. So I'm doing a thing. And if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you can do a thing with me. Here's what it is. Next week, which is July 31st, August 1st, someday next week on a weekday, I am renting out a theater in Northwest Portland. The entire theater. The whole theater. Um, the theater seats 46 people, I think. We're only going to do 20 tickets. So me and 19 other people, that's it. Um, in addition to that, there will be one employee. So the entire building, the entire cinema is going to be one employee plus 20 attendees. That's it. Um, we are the only people in the building and every single person, including that employee, is going to be wearing an N95 the entire time. The employee is going to put it on before they enter the building. They've been chosen specifically for this purpose. They seem to get it. Um, if you show up because you bought a ticket, I need to see a KN94 well-fitted or a 95 well-fitted or a P100. And if I see a baggy mask, I'm going to tell you to take it off and put on one that I hand you. I'm holding onto a bunch of masks. Choose the one you like best. Um, there are no concessions during the movie. They're not even going to open it up. Do not bother bringing food or drinks. You may not take your mask off in the movie. If you need to scratch your nose or you need to take a sip of water, you need to get up exit the theater, do that, and then come back. It is a risk. I, I don't know how else to put that. It is definitely a risk to be in a building for two hours. Makes me anxious. But I feel like it's a measured risk and one I'm willing to take. And if there are more cautions that we could take, definitely let me know. <laughs> I'm Just give me a second on this one. I've seen this like five times now and I still cannot get through it with a straight face. Okay. So <laughs> 
we're going to see Barbie. She's not like left the house in four years or something. She really, really, really wants to see Barbie because a movie, which is supposed to be about entertainment, offers the opportunity for fun. And what's more fun than renting out a theater in the morning before it opens, capping it to 20 people, banning concessions, making everyone wear an N95 mask, and like chastising anyone if they dare want a sip of water or to scratch their nose. And after all that, we still get the warning of I'm anxious about the risk. So here's my question for you. Who would you rather see Barbie with, that woman or Justin Trudeau? Let me leave you with that as we head out here. My thanks to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. We'll be back on Friday here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.